You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I Am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. This episode is brought to you by Annie's Kit Clubs, delivering creativity right to your mailbox. With nearly 100 years of crafting experience, Annie's helps you try a new craft every month. Crochet or knit an afghan, build your fabric stash, or introduce your kids to crafting. In your kit, you'll receive all the special supplies and expert instructions to make something new every month. As artists, it's important to have a creative outlet and hobby outside of your work and practice, and Annie's can help you learn new skills like woodworking, jewelry making, knitting, or crochet. I learned to crochet last year because I needed a hobby. So I made my first blanket, and it was just a repeat of the same pattern, which was fun, but left me wanting more. So when I got my first Annie's kit, I was so excited to get started on the Moroccan Tile Crochet Afghan Club Kit. I chose this kit so I could make a beautiful blanket and learn new patterns and techniques along the way. I get to build crochet skills month by month while stitching beautiful tiles, which is perfect for advanced beginners, which is what I guess I am. Each kit includes all the yarn and patterns to crochet a new section of your afghan, which is complete after the 10th kit. Annie's also has helpful online video tutorials that walk you through every step of the way, which is my favorite way to learn, but also has paper patterns if that's your style. No matter your age, skill level, or crafting interest, Annie's has a kit club for you. Use our promo code BEYONDTHESTUDIO75 for 75% off your first month of your subscription to their kits at annieskitclubs.com. That's annieskitclubs.com. Thanks for listening, and now for the show. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we're super excited to be sitting down with our friend and fellow artist, Morel Doucette, who we actually met uh, years and years ago when we all attended the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, Maryland. So I'm I'm super excited just to catch up more with you, Morel, because it has been a number of years since we've personally caught up, but I just, I remember you at Micah being so committed to your work and your practice and just being uh, A, incredibly talented and also super prolific. 
and always in the studio. And so it's just been really fun in the years since to watch your work progress from afar. I followed your you know, work and kind of loosely what you've been up to on social media and uh, just getting to see your career really flourish uh, has been really fun and exciting. So I'm just looking forward to catching up more and hearing what you've been up to. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, I'm excited for today's conversation. Thank you so much for the both of you guys for having me. Um, it's a absolute honor to be on a podcast. Um, I definitely tune in a couple of times on past episodes from other artists who I've also admire. Um, and so to be oh, um, amazing is really an incredible blessing. Um, yes, I guess I, we can start off a little bit about being at Micah. For me, it's interesting having you look at me from the outside, because I feel like when I was a student, it was in constant flight or swim kind of mode. Um, mm. I, was, I was in constant either either swimming or trying to to um, drown. That's how mm-hmm. I, I have a little bit about my Micah experience. Um, when I came mm. to school, um, I, I was a complete introvert from from high school. Um, mm. And so immediately when I when I came to Micah, um, I was recipient of Micah's presidential scholarship, um, which is one of the top awards that the school give out. And mm. so of the award, I guess Micah announces a big press, a big announcement. And so I went from being an introvert to all eyes being on me at every single second. And with my professors, there was a level, there was a standard that they, I guess, had for me that I immediately felt it was a distinction from my peers. Um, Hmm. And so for me, um, you know, going to a magnet art high school. I've been in a spe- I've been in a specialized art magnet since elementary school. So from elementary mm-hmm. middle wow. high school, I've been doing art and I've been exposed to a lot of different mediums over the course of my lifetime as a young student. And so coming to Micah, you know, being in my own little bubble, a lot of weight and pressure was added on me when Micah mm-hmm. made initial announcement, oh, this is one of our presidential scholars for this income class. So that's kind of the first, first kind of foundation. And then on, on a second foundation, um, you know, I'm Haitian American. Um, I was born in Haiti. I grew up here in the U.S. And so when you're a, a child of an immigrant and you choose a untraditional path, which is the arts, um, that's another added layer of pressure um, to accelerate. Mm-hmm. To perform, um, and so I, even though I excelled academically, um, I made the choice to pursue school and the arts. And so the deal I had with myself was, I can always fall back in the medical field. I had the grades, I had the understanding of it, but I did not want to live a life of regret. And so when I came to Micah, it was not only proving myself that I could do and become something in the arts, but also proving people in my life that was kind of unsure about why I chose that career path. Yeah, I'm really curious to know more about, it sounds like from an, a pretty early age, from elementary school on, you were kind of on this visual arts track. And Amanda and I were just chatting um, before the recording, too, about the the magnet program that you went to in Florida, which is uh, one of the, the t- top visual art high schools in the country. And... I imagine that, well, those programs can be really intensive. And it's interesting that 
uh, it seems many students from those schools will will choose different paths or it's almost like they've had that college level art experience already. And so I'm I'm just wondering if you uh, it sounds like there were some other industries you were considering, but did you feel like art was always the thing that you wanted to do or were you ever exploring different options? I think as you were just, you know, yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. So, um, yeah, so the, the high school that I went to was called New World School of the Arts. And as mentioned, um, is one is is still one of the top performing high schools in the US when it comes to, to visual arts. Um, and so a lot of the alumni have gone to all the major institutions. Um, within my class, we have people with um, Emmys and, and Oscars and Tonys. It was a visual and performing arts high school. So within my other peers that are in dance and theater, um, I have friends that have like Tony Awards and Oscars, all these amazing accolades. And so to kind of answer your question, it was I was I was on on the fence, you know, like I had I had a academic advisor back in high school that essentially was trying to usher me into career in the medical field. Um, when I graduated high school, I had a weighted GPA of a 4.45 GPA. Um, so again, academically... Oh my gosh. I, was, I, I knew you were smart, Morel. I didn't know you were a certified genius level brilliant. <laughs> um, you know, so I had, I had... I didn't even know GPAs went up that high. <laughs> well, yeah, if you take like different AP classes, you can kind of like, like stack them. So you can go mm-hmm. kind of higher. Okay, yeah. And so, you know, I took a couple um, advanced placement of class to kind of help my my GPA. And so, you know, so I had my academic advisor who I looked up to as an advisor, giving me guidance and direction. And, you know, I'm sitting in her office and she's like, here's all these wonderful schools I have selected for you. And none of them were really art schools. They're all like liberal arts colleges. Mm. And so, and, and here's me, you know, I'm looking at art school. And so I applied to 15 schools when I was back in high school. I got into 13 out of the 15. Um, then I was able to narrow down the 13 down to my top five. So it was Micah, Kansas City Art Institute, um, College for Creative Studies, Savannah College of Art and Design, and one other school, which I don't remember off the top of my, my head. Mm-hmm. And then after that five, Micah and Kansas City gave me, you know, top awards. Um, had had I gone to Kansas City Art Institute, I would have had a full scholarship and would have been paid essentially extra money to just be on campus as a student. Um, mm. they, they, I think at that time, I was one of the highest decorated students they gave a scholarship package to in order to go wow. there. I, but at the end of the day, it was in the Midwest, and I didn't really see myself building a career, let alone connection being in the Midwest. Micah, for me, was in proximity to New York, to DC, Philadelphia. So Micah was a jumping board that would give me access to these other cities. And for me at the time, that was where the epicenter of the art world, which is New York. And so it felt natural for me to want to go to Micah. And Micah felt more authentic in terms of city, because I know there are Black people in Baltimore. And so I felt a little bit of an easier transition going to Baltimore versus going to the mm-hmm. middle of, of nowhere in, in Kansas City. And so, yeah, so I was definitely torn. So during the course of my time at MICA, I mean, I came in choosing a very safe career path, which was design and illustration. 
I stayed in that program, did the work, you know, did the assignments. And then around the time of my junior year at MICA, um, I had a really difficult time my first semester of junior year. Um, I had a professor um, who shall remain nameless for this podcast. I just did not, there's something off about the class, the class, the experience being in the class. And at the time, this professor was one of the gatekeepers in the industry of illustration design, you know? And so here's me um, looking at one of the top person in the industry, and I'm having a really hard time struggling in this class. Um, and then also just kind of take like kind of having this outer look on my self, you know, 10 years post Micah, I did not see myself being in this industry for too long. I was not interested in telling the story of what the art director assigned to me as an illustrator or as a graphic designer. And I was more interested in kind of telling my own story, my own legacy of me being, again, immigrant, me being Haitian, me being first generation. Um, those were the things that was of interest to me. And by me staying in that in that field, um, I did not have a voice. Um, and so mm-hmm. after my, my first semester of junior year um, was finished, I went over to my academic advisor and I requested to change my major from illustration over to ceramic. And my professor, David East, who's the department chair of ceramic, have been trying to convince me for three years to become a ceramic major. And when I came to his office, he had a folder he kept for me in his desk. So he pulled out his folder and was like, sign here, sign there, and then go turn this over to your advisor. So the oh fact that God. he waited three years for me. <laughs> He's like, I've been waiting for you, Morel, waiting for this moment. <laughs> that is so precious. And then I changed my major. And for me, it was just the beginning um, of this incredible journey where I was able to do a 360 from being unsure of what I wanted to do with my time at MICA, of what I wanted to do for my thesis, to having a better understanding of what I wanted to move forward. And then going into senior year at MICA, in order to kind of further prove to myself that I was capable of doing certain things, I applied to become a teacher's assistant, and I was um, given the opportunity to help out with introduction to ceramic, as well as introduction to poetry. And I didn't mention this, but my minor is creative writing. And I remember when I was at MICA, I made a intentional effort to kind of have a better understanding of writing because I feel like, you know, as an immigrant, English is such, it's so complex. I never feel like I had, I never grasped a full understanding of the nuances of the language. And so by making, the decision to minor in creative writing, it empowered me to speak about my work and to not let somebody else tell my own stories for me. So I began writing about the work that I was making. Uh, And all of that have come full circle today as an artist with grant writing, project proposals, and things like that. I can't believe that our paths did not cross when we were at MICA because so much of What you were saying, especially from the illustration experience, I relate very hard to that. And like, I also had started at MICA and I think it was the like illustration graphic design course. And I think I know who you're talking about. I also won't name names, but yeah, a very specific, very well-known professor was the teacher of that course. And I learned pretty much immediately that I was not going to be 
well-received in that department because of just my style. And I was like, oh, this doesn't feel like I'm going to get a chance to actually get the education I want out of this. So I'm going to go to a different department where, you know, someone understands my vision and is supportive of it and will help me learn. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I always felt really weird about the department or at least how it was at the time illustration because, you know, for listeners not familiar, we're the same year at MICA. So it was definitely things were weird at that time in that. Yeah. And off the record, we can talk about that teacher, but I won't yeah. um, give that professor a platform. Agreed. But we will continue. Senior year, I'm producing work. We have our senior thesis. And again, the fear of failure is driving me, is pushing me. And so I was able to get a job before I graduated at the School 33 Art Center. So I was graduating like in May, I think it was like May 20th, I think it was, or May 18th was graduation. And like a week and a half before things were finalized, I, I, I had a job lined up for me. So I, I so I literally walked the stage, grabbed my degree, and I went to work on Monday, <laughs> that following that following day. Um, so I was working down at the School 33 Art Center. I was initially, I was originally hired as a teacher to teach um, during the summer in Baltimore County Public um, Schools. But then I had so much administrative experience during my time at MICA, I, the, my, my boss made me her direct assistant instead. I was more valuable to her as an assistant than me just going out in the community teaching these, these, these classes. And then it was a great time with her. I still give her um, praise. Her name is Cash Heschler. And she was the director down at the School 33 Art Center. And I remember, I, I don't know, Nicole, if you remember this, um, there was one time, I think when you when you had just freshly moved down to South Point, and I had come, I think I had come by to visit like the a new spot. And that and I came over from work at the School 33 Art Center to 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 stop by. So that was around the um time of me starting the um job um there. And then the position came to an end at the end of the summer. And they didn't have the funding to keep me for the year, but they had funding to keep to, to hire me the following summer. And so I had a decision to stay in Baltimore for a year and try to find work or come back home and go from there. Um, and so after debating back and forth, I decided to just come back home to Miami. Um, when I came back, you know, when, when, I, when I left Miami in high school, Miami was not a very forgiving city for artists. You know, it was very expensive. There was not a lot of opportunities. And it just so happened when I came back, um, Miami was transitioning. And so when I came back, I was working as a graphic designer. So that those couple of classes became very helpful. Um, but then a week into my design job, I got hired by MAM, which is the Miami Art Museum, and they're becoming the Perez Art Museum Miami. Um, and so I was able to join the Perez Art Museum as part of their original team of educator or teaching artists to open up the museum. I was working in this brand new museum before it opened up to the public with a construction hat. So walking through the hallways, figuring out the walls, the, the placement. And I didn't realize at the time of how much of a privilege that was because not many people get the opportunity to work in a new museum and build the museum from the ground up. So I can proudly say I was part of the team that built the department of what education is today at PAM. And then I stayed at PAM for five years. And then I was able to take my skill set at PAM to transition um, to teach over at the Institute of Contemporary Miami, which is 
one of Miami's newer museum that opened up. And I've been working at ICA for six years, and I just stepped down last year, May, to focus on my practice full-time as an artist. That's amazing. I'm really curious, just rewinding a little bit, you mentioned when you were living in Baltimore, you had this choice about whether to come home to Miami or to stay and, you know, wait for this um, job to become available the next year. And when you were making the decision to attend MICA, uh, you mentioned the proximity to other cities like New York and Philadelphia. Had you ever considered any of those other places? Or I'm just interested to hear more about that decision to return to Miami um, versus, you know, move into another city? That's a great question. So during my junior year, I interned in New York. Um, there was a show, you guys are in the same generation as me. There was a show on Bravo called Work of Art, The Next Great Artist. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, show. yeah. Well, it's come up recently because there's that new MTV show coming out. Have you seen it? The Exhibit? Yeah. Uh -huh. So the inaugural season winner, Abby Farah, the first inaugural winner, the Black artist, I was his assistant in New York that summer. He had an open call. Oh, um, wow. went out, and I immediately like applied like in like the first hour of the post, got all my resumes, got everything together. And I submitted to him this thing and it's beautiful, eloquent. I gave him all my material and then like a really like beautiful type up letter of introduction. Like, and then he kind of like vaguely knew me as well. And I got the job. I got the job as his assistant. I had a family member Amazing. that lived in, Flat in Flatbush, New York. And I was just like, we gonna make it work. Like, I, I don't care if I gotta <laughs> sleep on the floor, but I'm going to New York to do this intern for this artist. Yes. And, and, and then you know, at that time, he, he just came off this big high from winning a show on TV. And New York was an eye opener. I was just like, whoa, this is this art world. It's a whole, it's a beast. Like it's one thing doing art in Baltimore, but being a young student in school, interning in New York, it allowed me to see the foresight of what the possibilities were for me as an artist. And the highlight of that internship for me was that summer was the retrospective of Alexander McQueen at the Met Museum that summer. So before my internship had ended, he, um, he took me to the Met. He had a early access pass where we can go before the crowd. So we went in there, we, we went early in the morning before it opened up to like the general public. And we saw the exhibition in this pristine state without crowds. And I still have the book at home, actually. I have the Alexander, the Alexander McQueen book from that internship that I brought. And that, that between the intern working with him and that exhibition at the Met on Alexander McQueen, it enabled me to come back my senior year in college with this newfound appreciation for art and seeing, again, the limitless possibility of what you can do. Mm. I love hearing about the trajectory of your career because it sounds like so many elements from various jobs working in museums to teaching to admin work, like so much of it helps with behind the scenes part of your practice, the very like unsexy part of being an artist where you're like handling your taxes and figuring out how to, you know, budget your practice and get all your bills paid and I'm curious, what are maybe some things that you've taken from the like professional elements of your career and how they contribute to your practice? And for artists that maybe don't have the experience of having, you know, work jobs where they've had to learn how to, you know, balance books and whatnot. My last job, I joined ICA Miami, which is um, the Institute of Consumer Art in Miami. When I joined them initially, I, I joined the team 
as their curriculum and tour coordinator. So my, I was tasked with overseeing the school program for the museum. So I was creating academic lesson plans for the museum. I was doing tours in the gallery. I was doing professional development workshop for teachers, uh, working with the school board, working with principals. So it was a multifaceted job with many, many hats. In that role, you know, I had to come with a program budget, um, you know, how to itemize certain things. Um, I had to write descriptions about the program, being able to talk to teachers. So going from a complete introvert back in high school to being in front of a crowd of like 30 people or 40 plus doing a workshop of teachers that are relying on programming in order to get their master points towards their recertification. If, if I guess this is, if I were to talk to myself, my former self back in high school, telling him that he would be doing that, I would completely be in disbelief. But things like that, working in the museum, having to work at that level has helped me with like, you know, taxes, project management, reading over contract, which is super important as an artist, having the power to discern certain people, certain energies has been incredible, you know, and and I would say, you know, in the last two years, I've been very incredibly blessed where I've been able to make more money as an artist than working my regular nine to five at the museum. And I think that was the last push I needed for myself to tell me that you can do this. Like, I know you love teaching. I know you've invested so much into the community as an educator, but you, your first love has always been art. So why not make your first love your priority? There's no shortage of jobs as an educator. I can always get a little part-time job as an educator. So this season, is a season of me embracing my first talent that I've been cultivating since elementary school. And now I'm giving myself the permission as an artist to dwell in that season, to produce work in that season and seeing what can happen for myself. I love the way you describe that mental shift of just giving yourself permission and almost like you really owe it to yourself to commit the season to your practice, which you've been growing throughout your life and career and that you know that that being the full-time focus and seeing where that goes and I am really interested to hear more about that decision but also maybe some of the ways you were generating opportunities for your practice or how it was starting to grow alongside these parallel careers that you had as a museum educator in the years after Micah and then moving to Miami, maybe some of the ways that your artistic practice was growing, you know, while you were working other day jobs, um, kind of leading up to the time when you decided to, to focus on that full time. So going back to working at PAM, so I was working part time in the morning from nine in the morning to 2 p.m. was my part time job at PAM. And then I was working from four to 10 as a graphic designer. And I did it for almost a year, almost, about almost a year. I, I stepped down from my design job about eight months into it. And I, I took the money I was making as a designer to reallocate it back into my studio practice. So my first year post Micah, I didn't really do art. I was making art as, as a designer for a company, but I didn't make any personal art. And so once I left my design job, I found a industrial shop near my house, which is like five minute drive. I walked in, the guy had a kiln in a corner and I looked at him, I said, can I, can I, can I pay you $150 a month to put a table in this corner? And I, I just want, I want access to the kiln. And that was the agreement we made. 
and it went from one table to two tables of work and then it grew to a whole entire corner in this guy's shop producing work and the work that i made during that year i was able to display it in art Basel in miami which is one of the biggest art fairs in the globe wow. and the work that was displayed during art Basel led me to get gallery representation right after um from from a gallery seeing the work during Basel. And it just happened coincidentally, the gallery was located in Baltimore, Maryland, um, which when oh, I went wow. back to school at MICA. So it, it was just these moments of validation that the work that I was doing, I was on the right path and I needed to continue doing what I was doing um, because it was what I meant to be doing. So the work grew and then I was able to apply to what is, called the Art Center South Florida. Now it's called Olight Arts, but it was one of the premier residency program here in Miami. And by going through that program, it took the work that I was making and it gave it a wider platform to the greater Miami community. So I went from being, you know, like people knew my name, you know, I was fresh in town to getting a platform through that residency program. And that really helped propel my career, I would say. Um, so that program, they produced a video documentary about myself um, that was later nominated for a regional Emmy. Um, and then that, again, that's been the projection of my career. Um, and then I also wanted to diversify the work that I was making. I knew people were, be were becoming familiar with my ceramic work, but I've always been a multi-disciplinary artist. Painting and drawing is my foundation. Um, and so I've been intentional in producing other kinds of work as well, in addition to the ceramic work, which people love. And so, yes, that's been kind of like the easy path, um, not easy, but that's been the <laughs> gradual path of mm -hmm. starting with a table to produce work for $150 <laughs> um, and then growing to where I'm in my own studio now at the Big House Art Complex. And so it just shows that if, if you have an idea, you're persistent, you have somebody who's willing to listen into the idea that you, you can make something work. That's so helpful to hear how you were able to build up, especially the like ceramics aspect of your practice, because for listeners unfamiliar with ceramics, it's so expensive to build out a ceramic studio for yourself. Like the overhead is immense. The, you know, tools, the, the equipment, it's hard to find, it's expensive, it's hard to maintain, it's expensive to maintain, and the bills also. I mean, it's a lot of money to run a kiln. So I think it's so helpful to hear for young artists that are like, how do I, like, you know, ceramics is what they want to do, that it is possible, and connecting with people that already have access to those pieces of equipment is such a huge key. <laughs> And, and I would say, you know, ceramic, you know, as, as you've mentioned, is very expensive. And so, which is why I started also going back to my foundation, which is painting and drawing. Um, and so I will, I will say like my, my 2D work sells the quickest. Um, the ceramic takes a little bit longer to sell, um, but, but when they do sell, you know, they've gone to homes that I know is gonna take good care of the work. Um, and so as artists, I would say, you know, again, you know, for those that are young, are still in art school, um, I would encourage them to diversify their skill set. If you choose a career in design and you, and you take only design classes throughout your time in school, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. 
Um, I strongly recommend students that are going through the art school system to diversify their portfolio, their skill sets. Because um, if I'm a employer and I'm going to hire you, you're much more desirable, in my opinion, if you're multifaceted, where you can bring several things to the table or to my company, than you being good in one thing. And, and I say for those that want to just be good in one thing, then be so good at it where everybody got to come to you to do that one or that two things. Um, so those are the two things I, I would say. Yeah, I just think that is excellent advice. Um, and it's something that we've heard echoed from other artists as well, that diversity of income streams is really important. And so I think making that intentional choice to either broaden the disciplines you're working in or just to acquire new skill sets. I mean, that applies whether you're working a full-time day job, like you're saying, or to your studio practice. And we had just done an episode recently on visualizing your finances where we were breaking down our various income streams. And it's something that I've noticed too, that we you know, all have various slices of our income pie chart that make up the totality of our artistic practice. And for most artists, it's never just one thing, whether it be the sale of their work. I mean, there's all these different aspects. And I feel like, again, at least from the outside looking in, you're someone who really has embraced that. And I just see you taking on all these different types of projects, like making your work in the studio, collaborating with different companies or organizations even, um, and then having all these different facets to your, you know, your work as an artist. And I'm curious if you could talk a little more about that. Like how have you, what are those different, you know, facets to your work? And then how have you grown those between the studio and different types of collaborations? That's an incredible question. So around, you know, so being in the museum, is also a huge networking opportunity. Yeah. As a museum educator, you're the front face of the institution. Um, the community members, students, professors, they recognize you. You know, I'm in the grocery stores. They're like, Mr. Mo, good to see you, you know. So my students, you know, they oh, recognize nice. me throughout different parts of the neighborhood. Um, when I was over at the Perez Art Museum, um, we would see students. We would serve about 25,000 students a year um, that would come through the museum. And so if you break that number down, you're talking about almost 900 kids a week, every, every week coming through the museum. And so it's a lot and it's a lot of kids, a lot of teachers that are coming through the institution. And so um, once I got more comfortable, you know, just being myself, being the authentic version of myself, and then the work was reflecting that, brands just started reaching out to me through email, through social media. Like a couple of years back, I, I cleaned up my social media to just made it purely focused on my work. And if I was going to post anything about myself, then it was going to add a value to the work that I was making. And I think by doing that, I was able to carve out a unique niche for myself as an artist. There was a particular brand and image that people were seeing from the outside. And in these opportunities, they started coming my way. People were asking, like, how do I find them? As I don't find them, they find me. I'm like, I did a big campaign with like Ciroc Vodka, with the coffee company Nespresso. And these are brands that just reached out to me based on the content in the subject matter I was working on. The themes in my work are things like climate gentrification, seawater rise, community displacement. And at a certain time, they were very unpopular subject matter, almost taboo. Because you have to imagine in Miami, 
we're ground zero for seawater rise. So yep. a developer is not going to want to fund a project that's talking about the, the building going underwater in the next 50 years. And so my early project where it's all self-funded, you know, saving money, allocating budget, trying to find grants that would support the projects. For every project that I indulged in, I made it my mission to document my projects. So a lot of my, my so, so in terms of income, income comes from documentation and writing about the work. So I document everything that I make. Ceramic is such a fragile material. You can lose it or you can get damaged at any time. So whenever I make a piece, my rule of thumb is it needs to be photographed before it leaves the um, studio. And so in terms of income, I make money through sales with the gallery, with brand collaboration. I've, I sell prints through my website. I do teaching gigs. And recently I've been doing public art, um, which has been really the bulk of my money now. Um, public art, I just competed on a huge public art about four weeks ago at this point, where they had these blue chip artists like Nick Cave, um, Rashid Johnson, like these big national name, Hank Willis Thomas was on the form. And so just imagine, you know, like for me, it's like- Amazing. <laughs> a little artist like myself competing on a national level at these blue chip artists. And so, but for me, like, I know, I know the merit of my work, you know, I love the work that I do. And so those open call, I applied, I was shortlisted and through trial and error, I've gotten better at doing these large public proposals. And I know the formula of what they're looking for, the language. And so I'm about to work on one right now that I'm going to start the contract for next month. And the one that I competed, I, I should be hearing back from the people in the next two to three weeks, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Many public art projects are six-figure projects. So just imagine if you if you book one or two public art a year or every other year, that's like every two years, if you want a, a six-figure project, apply for one, you know? But I know yeah. the process is a little bit intimidating, but I promise you the reward benefits even even the, the monetary value of that money because um public art you know, is such a huge undertaking but it made me such a stronger artist um, moving forward because public art reflects the community and so the work needs to have a purpose of why it's being done and who is and being aware of who is being made for yeah absolutely i'm so glad you brought that up and i i don't know if i realized that you had stepped into the world of public art um so recently but i can absolutely see that knowing your your work but that's 100 percent true i think too it, for, even from my own experience this last year i was awarded a large public art commission and that's been the primary means of funding my practice for this year and so i do think those projects start to build on themselves but something I just wanted to call out about what you were saying, which I think is so exciting to see, but I, I, I think that storytelling aspect that you described being so important to your work just early on, that becoming a way for people to find you, I think the, the fact that you are such a great storyteller that you know, lets people into your process to what your work is about. And so the fact that you are getting contacted by these brands or, you know, getting reached out is, is no accident because you've been so intentional about building that story around what you're doing. So I think there's the storytelling aspect of it. And then also just to hear how 
you know, just by showing up in your community, by being such an active participant as a museum educator, that that is coming back to support your studio practice through the connections that you're making. And I think there's a great lesson in that too, whether it's through your, you know, through day jobs or just through other things that you might be involved in. Um, I think that's a really great lesson for other artists to be an active participant in your own community to show up and think about different ways that you can contribute and that, um, you know, those can all reinforce your, your art practice in different ways. Absolutely. That's a, I can't even put that in a better way. That's very eloquent in how you phrase that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to hear more about some of these recent projects, if you can share, or maybe the ones that have already been completed or are in process. I guess so right now, you know, as I'm talking to you, I'm in the studio. I'm working on my first solo show with my gallery. Um, so even though my gallery has represented me now for almost seven years, I've never had a solo show with him. Um, because I've been I've wow, been okay. I've been so busy, you know. A, I've been busy. Yeah. Other projects, but then also because I've I've been a full time educator, I've been able to produce you know a full body of work compared to the full time artists that are on mm. the roster. So this is my first time almost in seven years. I'm gonna have a solo show at the gallery. Um, I've never even been in the space at this point, you know, because it's been so long. I don't even wow. remember what it even looks like. Um, so I feel okay, like yeah. I feel like right now. I've literally, I've been like, if I was like writing my own chapter in, of my life, like I've been writing, 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 but then the book, I just closed that, the old book and I have this blank book. <laughs> I'm back to square one again. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just carving yeah. out like the beginning page of this new book. Cause then you know, I stepped down from the museum, you know, I'm having my first, uh, my first gallery show of my gallery, who I've been working with now for almost seven years. Um, so everything is back to square one again for me. And this is you know, this moment where I'm a little bit nervous, a little bit anxious, but I feel different that I'm doing this on my term. And it's nobody forcing me to do it. Everything feels like it's the right time. Um, one of the best things I could have done, you know, before I made that transition, um, I was able to take a little bit of the equity I've made um, through my brand projects and public art project and become a homeowner. Um, and so as, as artists, I think that's such a huge hill for us to kind of climb because yes. a lot of artists, you know, because of based on the city they're, they're in, don't have the luxury of having a studio space or even some kind of home. And so, um, you know, by talking to my peers and my mentor and I asked them, OK, so I have, you know, this this chunk of equity. What, what should I do with it? And they're just like buy property, buy something, find something tangible that's going to generate um, either residual income or build on the equity that you already have. And so I was able to become a homeowner in the last year. Um, and that also has given me a level of comfort that I didn't necessarily have before um, when I was working the nine to five. Congratulations. That is such a huge achievement. Uh, there was something that you had said before about throwing it way back to like 10 minutes ago, when you had talked about documenting your work and like making it a priority to really get great photos of your work. And like for listeners that have not seen, I can vouch your photos are so beautiful. And like the photos of your work are works of art in and of themselves. And I think that's such an important thing to think about for artists that work in 3D that produce, you know, one large, delicate, expensive, whatever, just a, an individual object that like documenting it, 
that can also be another stream of income or another way of your practice. I feel like sometimes the photos of my work, it's like I'm almost more attached to them than the pieces I make sometimes because I'm like, oh, I just want to see them all together at once in this specific form of lighting or in this specific place or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's, again, I, that I go back to being back in school at Micah because at Micah, you know, my David East and a few other of the, the other teachers made it a priority to document your work because ceramic, um, because of the nature of the work, you know, is it can break, it can break, it can change, it can alter. And so by being adamant about documenting it, I've kind of like, that's one of my top rules in the studio. Whatever work is done, is it needs to be documented before it leaves the studio. If it's damaged, at least I had a great picture of it. And so again, you know, and going back to what Nicole was saying, it's part of that storytelling. Um, you know, being a immigrant coming to this new country, many of my histories have been erased. And so I'm aware the work that I'm doing as an artist is going to be impacting the community that I'm in. My work, you know, deals with legacy, with Black and brown spaces. And so as a result of that, my work inherently takes on a political undertone. Um, because when you're talking about gentrification, um, seawaterize, these are not just, you know, it's not impacting a singular person. It's, it's impacting entire community. And so again, you know, I use data, you know, charts to inform the work. And so over the course of my practice is this documenting has been a natural part of that. And with great documentation, that leads to grant opportunity, brings more visibility to the work. And this is another way um, for, for the artists that are listening on this podcast is that's another way, again, to generate income. Um, you know, if you have great photos and if you have a great narrative, a great statement, then you're, you're putting a visual to that idea. And by having the idea that you're going to have some kind of support or some kind of network that will receive and reciprocate the work. Yeah, that's such a powerful idea that the act of documenting your work can also be a political act in and of itself, preserving that story and that history is a way of continuing the legacy and knowing the the subject matter and the nature of your work that makes so much sense um, how the documentation becomes built into the narrative of the work itself and, and a part of the work not something that is you know secondary just coming after or just a way of you know capturing the the physical object there's so much I want to ask you about both the public art process and now um, knowing that you're a recent homeowner. Um, is your studio now within your home or do you have a separate studio space still? My studio is separate. So I've made it, I've made a distinct effort to not bring work home because I've already, mm -hmm. you know, a workaholic in you know, between working this full-time job and trying to maintain a studio practice. I've made a promise to myself to not try to work at home. So even though I have space, you know, I have a two-car spot, I can work in a garage, I have a, a, a really nice backyard, I have the space to work from home, but I've made it my mission to keep the two spaces separate. And then also, you know, as I feel like as an artist, um, you may not want people coming to your home because a home is, is another extension of yourself. So yeah. by having yeah. them separate, um, you'd be like, 
I don't know you. I don't think I want you, you know, coming over to my house. So by having a separate space, you're able to set a level of boundary um, as well between um, the work that you're making and the people that are trying to consume or are interested in, in, in the work. Yeah, that you made wise choices because <laughs> I, I, I can definitely vouch for that. Like, I would love to be able to have an open studio event, but it's never going to happen. Only my friends come into my house. <laughs> exactly, you know. And I think, again, you know, um, with the art world, um, it can be jaded. You know, it can be very cutthroat and it's very competitive. And I think by giving somebody access to your home, um, you know, some people may not have the best intention or the best kind of motive. It's mm -hmm. now not only they're in your home, now they're looking at your things, touching your things, they're, they're, get, they're judging you um, sub subconsciously or, you know, overtly you know and so i think knowing me you know i i'm a i'm cancer you know i'm a natural introvert in order to keep all of that from happening or transpiring i just keep them separate for me and again you know uh, and in the studio i'm able to be messy things like that which i wouldn't want my house to become that yeah ceramics would definitely make a big old mess of your house <laughs> Yeah. This is kind of jumping back over into some of the projects you've been working on, but I'm I'm just interested to hear more about what that experience has been like for you to take on these more more ambitious projects as far as scale or more complex as far as the number of other teams that you might be working with. Uh, I mean, you clearly have so much experience as a museum educator and working in all these different environments and as a designer um, that you've brought over with you into your studio practice. And so I'm, I guess I'm interested to hear more about like what your, what are some of the takeaways or like things that you found through that process, especially because I, like I said, I've been more recently stepping into the world of public art myself. And I feel like it's such a different world, even from taking on commercial projects of a similar scale and you know, as someone who is who's done these brand collaborations and has also done public art projects, I'm really interested to hear more about you, your experience as far as like how those things differ. And yeah, it's a kind of open ended, but no problem. Um, so this is one, um, you know, I guess in complete in the spirit of transparency that I'm still figuring out as I go. Um, you know, in the last two years, I've probably subcontract about. 18 different people for different parts of, of projects that I've done. Um, wow. I think I've learned, you know, again, you know, even though I'm multidisciplinary, I have a lot of skill set. I can't do everything by myself. I've had to learn when to acknowledge that the work is beyond my level of capability, or I've had to learn to understand how to prioritize my time when it comes to these public art projects, is like, do I want to spend building a stretcher or do I just want to spend more time working on the project concept and getting the things done? Um, and so I've had to learn um, as an artist um, how to art direct, how to work with different people, different personalities. And then also even like the business side of things, I think when, you, when you're contracting, you know, like 15 people over a course of a year, different personalities, different people work a very, Everybody's is different. And so I, is, I've learned again how to be, you have to be a great communicator, um, how to effectively communicate with people to ask what you want, how do you want it done, when do you want it done? And if there's a level of misunderstanding, I have to come follow up with the person. We had a misunderstanding, how can we fix it? How can we move forward? Um, and that's something that is 
oftentimes not discussed, I feel like for artists, people have this vision that we're in the studio, just making work. When sometimes, you know, like I call like uh, on Mondays or my admin days, on Monday is all of my emails, all of my receipts, this documenting everything to make sure that um, I can effectively run the rest of the week by giving a day to myself to manage all of these different things. And then again, and then so right now, you know, I'm about to venture off to this new public art project that's gonna be, I'm, I'm making these custom pull tiles for a mixed development housing. And it's a new territory. I've never made tiles before. So it's new, it's new avenue, new venture, new project ideas. And I need to brainstorm how is this tile project going to be like? So here's me, do I focus on how do I best prioritize the needs and want of the project and what are things I can better delegate either to a, a project manager or somebody else that can handle certain tasks. So I'm still trying to weave and kind of figure out what is something that I should be focusing on or what is things I can delegate to somebody else. And I and I, I always say, you know, like money is energy. Um, you know, so given finding ways to redelegate that money, that energy to making sure that at the end of the day, you get a well-refined product. Yeah, that's such a great, I, I'm so glad that you brought this up because I do think that is sort of a myth that, you know, as a full-time visual artist, that all of the majority of your time is going to be spent creating the work in the studio. We tend to have this romantic notion, but the reality is there is a lot more administrative work or project management and determining you know where where you want to spend your energy and, and spend your time I think is such a great way to look at how to prioritize or deciding on when to outsource something is thinking about you know where do you want your time as an artist to go and I've definitely noticed that too I mean I'm now seven months ish into this public art project and we're just starting the fabrication phase and so it is getting a little more creative and hands-on but the majority of it up to this point has been entirely administrative and it's been all communications or research and I think that's maybe a misperception that some people may have in looking at these larger scale projects is that you know you're spending all this time in the studio but I have uh, many days that are dedicated to just the administrative side so I appreciate you mentioning that but then also thinking of how you can reclaim some of that creative time so like deciding on what or when to outsource have there been certain aspects of these projects that you have brought in help you mentioned I mean there's the collaboration like whoever you might be working with as far as commissioning, but. So I would use one example. Um, so I did a project for Facebook in one of their corporate offices. It's a funny thing. So they had a different project manager that led that program. Um, they reached out to me. Um, the project did not work out um, because what they wanted, they didn't want to pay the budget. Uh, and so I was like, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Um, fast forward four years later, um, they get a new person that is in charge of that department. And this new person reaches out to me, unbeknownst to her, that I was contacted four years prior about a similar project with Facebook. Wow, okay. And so they reached out to me and I was just like, oh, like I have this idea that I proposed four years ago, but it didn't work out because of budget. I go, I really would like to execute this project. Um, what is the budget? For the project can you be you know transparent or give me an idea of what you guys are willing to, to pay um and so we're able to kind of come to like a middle ground it was like a, it was like a small project for like forty thousand dollars so it was forty thousand dollars and 
again, so from that $40,000, immediately, like, almost 15000 of that was just going towards redelegating part of the project. So just like, do I want to go to the office and paint this wall? Absolutely not. My time is not going to be spent doing that. So I had to, you know, get a couple quotes. I was able to contract um a, a friend and his, and his wife to go inside the office and paint the walls. I wanted to, to add texture to the wall, but then they had issues like about the ventilation. So, right, so no more texture. We can't do that. And then, you know, and then this, the, the project was, was a ceramic project, which is labor intensive. And so I had to take another portion of the fund and delegate that to two other artists that can help me produce work in a similar aesthetic that would meet the tight deadline of the project. Because I had really about a, a two-month turnaround to do the project when it should have been easily a six- to seven-month project. And so from that, from that initial $40,000, about 20,000 of that was just going towards delegating pain for other people. So I was able, I guess, in my walk, it was like $20,000 from that project. But it's one of those projects where, you know, with a, with a major brand like Facebook, the project bring visibility. And then at the core of that project, it was what my work was about, which is about, you know, seawater rice, um, coral reef, reef bleaching. And so it was one of those projects where the commission checked several boxes, which is at the keystone of what my work is about. And so, um, so I got paid a little bit of money. I was able to pay friends, which is something I want to emphasize also is a lot of my projects I bring on friends. So I'm, so with one blessing, I'm able to pass on that blessing to other friends. So I have like a network of them, like for a certain project, I have someone for, for a painting, someone to install the work for certain projects. And as I'm advocating for myself to finalize a project budget, that budget, I already know how I'm going to reallocate it to, to pay people that are part of this network that I've been working with over the past couple of years. And so, yes, yeah, so, so I'll just leave, leave it at that where public art, you know, it's a blessing and it can reciprocate in other forms and it can it can help other artists in other ways. And so over the past couple of years, um, I've built this network of other artists that have become accustomed to working with me. We have a similar language, a similar way of doing things. And like like my photographer, um, we just did a campaign for Nespresso. And you know, these are like small projects, like, you know, like 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 a small campaign for like a thousand bucks. And so I was like, hey, it's a thousand dollars. Do you want to go half and half on this project? So I get 500 bucks, you get 500 bucks. And then we meet up, we, we have a fun day in the studio. And then the, the brand gets their final project. And it's, it's things like that where you're building community, you're building this relationship, and it continues and leads to more other projects. That is so empowering for artists to hear because not only by advocating for yourself and, and knowing realistically what it's going to take to create a project um, and being willing to say no, especially to a large brand, I think so many artists feel pressured to just accept whatever is offered and that, you you know, those things can come back around and it can, you know, when the timing is right, eventually lead into something and you knew, you knew what was required and, you know, the worth of your work, but reframing it in a way too, that by, by advocating for yourself and your work, you're also able to then continue to reinvest back in your own community and to continue to support those around you. And so that I think just aligns with the, the way that you're viewing, you know, money as an energy exchange and that, being willing to to ask for you know what is needed to create your work, uh, you're able to create opportunity for those in your community, um, which I think is amazing. 
I'm curious if you've found ways to like advocate or negotiate in that way within the context of these public art projects, because we were just talking about this in that visualizing your finances episode that Amanda and I did, where, you know, my experience the last two years has been taking on essentially one large commercial project and then one large public art project. And I found that the project budgets for those have been uh, maybe like similar scale projects, but there's so much more dedicated to the materials and resources within public art. And so often your artist fee or maybe what goes towards fabricating is a lot lower. And so with the commercial projects, I felt like there was more flexibility and you're nodding like you understand. So I'm wondering like how you've been creative within. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, to bring um, emphasis of what Nicole is saying. So for example, let's say if you get a public art project and the project budget is $100,000. So your artist fee, so typically you would pay yourself an 18 to 20% artist fee. So you're looking at maybe uh -huh. like $80,000 from that $100,000 initially. And that other, they, that other, you know, almost like $90,000 is going towards, you know, legal fee, foundation, uh, fabrication. So people hear these large price tags, but they don't realize that oftentimes the artist is, working with a fabricator to make the work. So the majority of the money is going towards another person or another company in order to achieve the work. But one thing that I have encountered is it depends on that project. You know, some public art projects are very black and white. They have a very tight budget and there's no room for flexibility. Um, but there has been situation where the public art has found additional funding if they really want that project. Um, and so, and that funding can be a additional $20,000 to another, you know, or, or X amount, but it all depends on that city and it all depends on where that money is coming from and the, and like, and what are the finances of that organization? But, but as mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. with private clients, they tend to be more like forgiving or easier to kind of just dish out the money. Like, what do you need? Let me, how much you need? Just tell us a number. We'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah. Less layers of approval. Yeah. Less layers of approval. Yeah. But with public art, it, there's so many systems to approve it before you get the final okay. Um, so public art is more rigid. And then with private client or brand projects, they have a little bit more flexibility sometimes depending on what the project is. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm glad that you said that too. But it does not hurt if you want to advocate for yourself. If you know a project yeah. makes a little bit more, the worst you can get is it's a no. I, I always say better to ask and just get a straight no than keep saying yourself what if, what if, what if, what if. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wondering, do you have any, um, because we've been talking so much about these different types of collaboration and deciding on when to either like outsource certain aspects or uh, just bring in other people into the fold? Do you have um, people as part of a team that you're working with consistently or is it really project dependent, you know, looking at the needs of a particular kind of work? Yeah, so yeah. for now is more, in terms of my core people, I have my photographer, his name is David Gary Lord. And I've been working with David over 10 years now. Um, we initially met 
as educators at the Perez Art Museum. So we met as co-workers at the Perez Art Museum. Um, he went to school at Savannah College of Art and Design, and he had a very meticulous way of documenting things, which parallel how I did ceramic in a studio. And so I'm just like, you're like, David is, is white. So like, you're like the white version of me. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I'm like, you're very meticulous in doing certain things. And I like your aesthetic. And then we just clicked. I've been working with him now for over 10 years. And a lot of the work on the website, that have been on book covers. A lot of it has been documented by him. Um, most recently, mm -hmm. uh, I was on the cover of contemporary um, African-American artists working in ceramic. And the book mm -hmm. cover, that image, he shot that in his, at his home. I remember when I brought the work over to his house and he had this idea of me holding the object in, in a certain way. And then years later, that work ended up being a cover image of this really important book. So again, but I trust him because he's so much like me where I can walk into his home, into his studio and give him agency over the work because I know he's going to treat it with a level of care that I show the work when I make it. Um, and then I have another friend, um, Andrew Copeland, who went to Micah with me. I've known Andrew. So Andrew was a, a transfer student and he used to kind of crash in my off-campus apartment. And we just stayed good friends, you know, and my parting graduation gift was him branding me a logo and if you go on my, on my website that the logo on my website he gave that to me as a graduation gift and Aww, so i gave that logo into for all of my marketing my campaign um that logo that he designed for me in college i'm still using it on every project that I work with andrew comes on as a creative consultant and he's been on a couple of these public art presentations with me. The way his mind works, he focuses on the big picture. I'm into like the the nuances and, and the details. So Andrew, being a different side um, for me, is able to look at the big picture of my public art project. What is the big picture? How does this proposal bring value to what you're trying to communicate for the project? And then again, you know, something else I would say is with public art projects, the ones I've been doing, there's also a project on an area. And so you're still getting paid, even though, you know, you don't you don't get the project, you still get get paid. Mm -hmm. and, so, uh, and so I'm able to take um, the honorarium and then split a commission with Andrew for helping, for giving me the time to review the project, for, for being on, on the call with me when I'm presenting the project as well. And there's there's moments where maybe I may forget something. He can come in as a collaborator on, on the project to speak on my behalf, to add value to what I'm saying in the presentation. Um, so those are like the two artists to, that are at the core. And then everyone else, they're hired on a project basis. And so I so I know if, you know if David can't do it, I have another photographer who works with me at my studio and have, you know, a different, so I, so I have somebody for everything that I need to do. Yeah, the value of that community and collaboration, I think for artists especially, is so crucial. And I love that mm -hmm. there are all these ways that you've been able to work together with your friends and, you know, these artists that are, they're able to bring a different perspective or work in similar ways and uh, just like balancing out the, the work that you're doing. And um, so I love the way that you're bringing other people into the fold and into your process. Yeah. So the um, statement where it takes a village is for me, um, is a living experience where again, like yeah. we'll see the refined package, I guess, on the website, on social media, but then there is a network of artists who 
are constantly um, helping me improve the work, how to make the work stronger, and just challenging me every single day. Being like the studio where I'm at right now, we have a little bit over 100 artists. And it's like being in grad school all over again. So they work in so many different mediums, um, but they keep me sharp on my toe. If I'm having some kind of um, like a bad day in the studio, I don't know what I'm working on. I can knock on anybody's door. They could come over and like, hey, this is working. How about try this? Try something different. So as an artist, by keeping a community that's not going to, that's, that's going to hype you and, and, and give you life when you're down, but it also is going to give you like, like authentic feedback that's going to be beneficial has been very important for me. Yeah. Something that I, well, this is a bit of a segue, but something I guess related to creating that sense of community, something that I've seen you do that I really admire is also creating space for conversation and trying to bring more transparency to projects that you've been working on. And I don't know if, if you're willing to talk about this. I saw um, something that you posted on social media a little while ago about creating a, a safe space for conversation with other artists around gallery relationships. And I wanted to ask you more about that. Whatever you're willing to share about, uh, like what motivated it. Um, have you had conversations since? Um, what has that evolved into? Yeah, absolutely. So funny thing. Um, before this podcast, um, I, I just came from another meeting at the Fountainhead Residency, and it's a, a space here in Miami, Florida. The artist goes through throughout the um, years. And so essentially, it was a artist focus group that was talking specifically about that. What are some resources that we, we can help wow. artists here in, in, in South Florida? Um, but kind of going to the core of, of your question, um, you know, in my you know, experience, you know, I'm being an artist and educator, um, there's a lot of things that I've learned of how the industry run and function. So I've had the privilege of seeing the behind the scenes of the museum, of what really goes on and these museum. So in addition to the Paris Art Museum and ICM Miami, I've taught at four other museums in various capacities as a contractor. And so I really have a innate understanding of what really goes behind the scenes in these institutions. And it's not always glitz and glamour, you know, museums. Yeah. No, really. <laughs> it's a business and they have yeah. to run a certain way. And so as a result of that, there are certain things that are done where it, it benefits the board, it benefits the museum, and it doesn't really help the worker, you know? Like mm -hmm. at PAM, for example, when I was there, there was a phrase they would call PAMILY. So it's, it's a play on the word family. Oh, yeah. um, and for me, those are code words for trauma for me um, because yeah. uh, institution. Mm -hmm. Any company that describes themselves as a family, you got to be really It's uh, a trap. <laughs> trap you know? And so, um, so this is me. So, you know, it's I've, usually I, an abusive one. Yeah. And so for me, um, you know, like I said, my time at Pam has been incredible. But I remember during the pandemic, um, Pam furloughed a, a lot of people including the um, teaching artists that were there. And a lot of them were hurt. A lot of them were hurt. And when Pam was in a position to open back up, many of those teaching artists did not return back to the institution um, because they were blindsided. When I was at Pam, I was always under the impression that the education was partly funded by like the Knight Foundation. So Pam has like this 
endowment from the Knight Foundation that pretty much guarantees, you know, education program is running. It stays running. So I was always under the impression that we were being paid through this endowment for education, things like that. I didn't think it was affecting our part-time pay, but apparently it did. And so a lot of people were furloughed and they were hurt. Um, and again, and I think as a family, you know, these are things <laughs> that necessarily may not have happened. You know, I think they probably could have done a few other things to keep the doors, the, these people working, but that was the route they chose to go. You know, um, for me, I was working at ICA during the pandemic. I was not furloughed or laid off. I was very fortunate, um, but I had to adopt all of my curriculums to becoming virtual. So within a matter of two weeks, everything I had planned for the entire school year had to be revised and done over Zoom. And that was a task in itself, you know, to adopt everything like that. You know, but again, I was very thankful. I didn't lose my job. I was never let go. Oh uh, yeah. So so going back to what I was saying, the idea of how artists can empower each other from predatory practices um, came as a result of that. So what happened was, you know, a lot of my close friends and, and peers were signing terrible contract of galleries, and they were experiencing things, but they were experiencing it in complete silence, and they didn't realize that, oh, this is, I'm like, this is not okay. For you to work with a gallery, and that gallery never issue you a 1099, that is not okay. Um, for you to, quote unquote, sell work with a gallery, and they're refusing to disclose the collector to you, that is not okay. You know, for you, for you, yeah. to, the list goes on and on and on. But these were things that were happening to my friends. And, and I was just like, well, this is not okay. This is, here's a contract I signed with my gallery. And these, this is the um, standards that I've, my gallery has uphold with me. And if your gallery is not doing this, then maybe you should walk away. There's another friend, if she walks away from her gallery, the gallery is entitled to two years of her work after the contract is over because that's what she she um, signed. Oh, wow. And so um, a lot of it goes back to education. But art school, unfortunately, even till now, art school does not teach you the business of art. Art school teaches you um, craftsmanship. They teach you, they teach you skills. Um, but a lot of young artists that are leaving undergrad, grad school are ill-equipped to deal with the day-to-day -day nuances of being an artist. Um, things like taxes, you know, filing a LLC or a corporation. These are things I feel like should, should be integrated into the curriculum as a student in art school. Rather you choose to pursue a career in arts or not, it's up to you. But I feel like at the core of the basic requirement to graduate, every artist should have a business open. Every artist should know how to file their, their taxes before leaving art school. I've been doing like, a, like filling one out, like a, like a paper version of it and keeping it in a folder where years later they can open up that folder and see these documents. And during my time at Micah, like Micah did not teach us that. At Micah, we had a, a one week crash course about this, like literally like a couple of months before graduation. Here's a crash course of how you do your taxes. You're like, what? Like, why wasn't this told to me? You know, like, yeah. Oh my God, I remember that class now. I think they all like sat us down and they were like, does anyone want to go to grad school? Okay, we'll move on. And I was like, what? Yeah. Wait, you want me to make a life choice right now? No. And decide whether or not I want to receive more information about it right now? Like what? Just tell me. You know, and so that was like, that was like, oh my God, like the fact that that, that ha it still happens now, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so I feel like, um, so going back to Nicole, 
there needs to be a conversation had where artists i feel like this there's information that's out there but it's not accessible to certain artists even yeah. something even something as basic as the culture, like like knowing the culture of a gallery. Like how do you, how do you know gallery is the right fit for representation? How do you go about doing that? It's this gray area where people don't know how to access it, and it should be like free information, but it's not. You know, I talk to students that are leaving art school, and they don't they don't know how to go about getting gallery representation. They don't realize that contracts are negotiable. They're not black and white. Like you can mm -hmm. you can. You like we we can rephrase certain things in the contract. You can negotiate mm -hmm. certain things, and I, that I blame that partly on the schools, the schools that are cranking out these students, and they're ill-equipped to deal with the realities of what being an artist is. Yes, amen, one hundred percent. And just I think to have the awareness that, like you said, these things are negotiable. That you can put forth. You you can ask for a contract even at a, at a most basic level i think that so much of these kind of art world dealings and relationships seem to happen behind closed doors or like you said there's so much that is remains uh, surrounded in this kind of air of mystery and so i think what i really appreciate about what you um are are doing and have done is just trying to kind of like peel back the curtain a little bit and create a space for artists to be able to have those conversations because it really is that creative community that come becomes our biggest asset where we're able to like talk with one another and i think like you said so many artists are kind of just suffering in silence or like in isolation and i think that breeds self-doubt or like well i i don't know if i can negotiate in this situation and just you know, hearing about the struggles of other artists or even like, how did you, and also the success stories, like how were you able to kind of navigate the situation and having that that community to turn to is so valuable. I wondered if you could talk about how, like, so going from kind of recognizing some of these issues and seeing some of the patterns across some of your artist friends to kind of like taking action around that or like what was the next step as far as like convening these groups to have uh, like what was the format and what happened? Oh my, yeah so right now you know I, I have a pop-up show here at one of the hotels and I'm going to use their platform to act to usher in the first version of this talk um because oh, cool. they wanted oh, to kind of talk yeah, they wanted to talk about the work, and I, it's prints of the original work. And so I don't want to talk about these prints. So I want to use their platform to yes. change the conversation a bit, you know. And and I feel like this could be one of several conversations that needs to be that needs to be happened. From where I just came from, they're looking at putting together a website that houses multiple facets of resources where artists can access. So so things from legal to artist opportunities, to postings, to like even like let's say if you need like a like a studio assistant, sometimes you don't even know where, where where to post one. You know, like it should not be that hard if you need help of where to go to post for help. You know, so right now this is where the meeting I just came from. Um we're trying to see how we can take our different resources and skill set and bring it under one umbrella that will benefit the greater artist community. St starting here in South Florida and and as the resource grows more, it can become this national kind of platform. Man, what an undertaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is it is, but the work is so necessary, you know. Um, like I will use Absolutely. like been two museums. Like again, like going back to Pam, you know, like I said, I love I love Pam, but no museum is 
exolve, you know, from their mm-hmm. from the thing. Um, you know, Pam has something every year they put on called Kids Jam, which is an annual fundraiser for the education department. It's to raise money and capital for education. And again, I've worked Kids Jam multiple times during the time I was at Pam. And right at the end of the pandemic, they reached out to me to be a participating artist for this Kids Jam. Because, you know, people like my work um, said they wanted me to create some kind of programming or activation that kids would enjoy during this day a festival and activation. And so I read the invitation letter. I'm happy, okay, cool, this is fun. I, I know Kids Jam, I know what it's about. But nowhere in that initial invitation is any mention of the honorarium. And so I'm like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I know this is a fundraiser, don't get me wrong. But do you ask the, the food trucks to work for free? Do you ask you know the, 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 the police department to work for free? So I'm like, no, I'm like your your every other staff is working or every other industry is working this event and they're being paid for it. But then the court of your institution as a museum is artists, you're asking artists to delegate their time for free because it's a fundraiser. And I'm like, that is that is not okay. Even at a fundraiser level, something as simple as a $100 ordinarium, $150 ordinarium is not a lot of money, but it's a small token of appreciation, saying that we wish we could pay you more, but here's a small ordinarium for your, your time. This can cover food, this can cover um, gas, something, you know? But for you to mm-hmm. just expect artists to just always working for free for this event, you perpetuate that same practice of taking advantage of artists, you know? Um, there's another museum in Miami um, the called the Core Gables Museum. It's a smaller institution, nowhere near the size of the Perez Art Museum, but that museum is nested in a community where the medium household income is $95,000, is the medium income. And mm. so, so you're telling me as a museum that is located in this community with the medium income is that level, you can't find an honorarium to pay artists to be doing part of your program. I'm pretty sure any one of these households would easily give you $1,000. That's nothing for them at yeah. that at that price point. And so the fact that you can't secure a honorarium to pay artists to do programming with your institution, that should not, that's not my fault. It's not me being ungrateful. It's like, you know, as artists, we have to make a living. We have a standard we have to hold ourselves up to. So if you want artists to come to your institution, then you need to use your platform, use your, your staff to generate the capital in order to support artists how they need to be supported. You know, and so for yeah. me, you know, I've, like I said, I've worked in museums you know, over 10 years. You know, I'm thankful to be in these rooms and these spaces. But at, at a certain point, it goes beyond being thankful. But what else are you doing to continue our longevity? Yeah, put that money where that mouth is. And like, it it boggles my mind that we've gotten this far in this world where arts institutions are blatantly not supportive of like contemporary living artists. And it's so, it's so absurd. And I'm grateful that we can have these conversations because it's so important to, to talk about it and uh, to also like give fellow contemporary living artists a heads up, like, Hey, you're going to have to advocate for yourself when working with institutions. And you really, really should. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that that responsibility often does fall on artists to self-advocate and that it really um, hinges on artists, you know, pushing back or being willing to, to say no to 
what seems like a great opportunity. And I think that is sometimes how these small shifts start to happen. And I feel like you've even proven that with some of the stories you've told today around, you know, projects that didn't work out coming back around um, when they have found more funding. So I think there is like a small bit of like some seed of encouragement in there because I think for an artist, if you're if you're feeling unsure or like experiencing some self doubt in you know saying no or advocating for yourself in those moments, that you know that that could be a signal to that institution to find the funding and then you know maybe they'll come back with an invitation later once they've been able to. But I think just realizing that you know you can always make those requests and and it's not just advocating for yourself but really for the arts at large. I think these stories are so common um, unfortunately whether it's with museums or you know higher education or even corporate brands. I mean I can think of so many examples where um, this has happened. But you've talked about the role of mentors in your own life a little bit. And I wondered if related to this, if you wanted to expand on that at all, or if there have been, you know, mentors in your own life, Um, like who are the people that you turn to um, when you are confronted with these situations? Is it mostly peers and community? And what does that look like? For me, when it comes to mentorship, it's across the board in, in all industries. Um, you know, during my time back in school, one of my biggest mentors was Clyde Johnson. He was the Dean of Diversity back at MICA. And again, you know, during that time, I didn't realize, but um, he was very impactful in helping me with my transition from leaving home and coming to Baltimore and trying to adjust to this new kind of city for me. Um, I had another positive uh, mentor, my creative writing thesis advisor, Dr. Chesia Kasia Thompson, was also very instrumental in helping me with my thesis, giving me the confidence as a writer with my friends. You know, my friends um, always keep it 100% with me. They don't sugarcoat it. And, you know, if something is not working, then it's not working. If I'm in the wrong, then I'm in the wrong. But by being able to comfortably talk to them and knowing that I'm going to get a response that comes from a place of love, but also that's going to make me better from what I'm going through at that particular time. Because I think, you know, it's great to it's great to have a yes man or some kind of hype man or a hype person in a, in a corner. Um, but this, uh, this other time, like if the work is not is not is not doing what it's supposed to do, <laughs> then the work is not it. You know, so you got to be you have to be. I want somebody that can. D- discern the work like if the work is hot the work is hot but if the work is questionable <laughs> then I just, the work is questionable <laughs> yeah. questionable then tell me the work is questionable uh, and I think um sometimes you know, as artists you can see I guess the ego and you know and so like again so I think there needs to be moments where you can separate the ego from the work and and I strongly believe that the work you make as an artist should live um, without a didactic. If you need a didactic to explain your work, then you felt, for my personal opinion as an artist, that the didactic should not be the driving message behind the work that you're making. The viewer should be able to experience the work without one. The The work should be able to, to, to live in a space or command a space without one. Yeah. I'm realizing that we've already run over our time a bit because we've just been having such a great conversation. And so I wanted to ask you, Morel, before we have to wrap up. 
Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that that you would want to make sure to share or make sure to talk about in this conversation? I would say that, you know, like being an artist, you know, like it is a hard career path, but it's not impossible. You know, um, if you um, arm yourself with the multiple skill set, um, if you are willing to advocate for yourself, then everything is going to turn out fine. And having that network, when you're in doubt, when you're feeling uneasy about a certain thing, having somebody to fall back on or that's going to give you the best solid advice for that particular moment is key. And then also like, you know, like, you know, as artists, you know, our job is important, you know, like our, we're the cultural barriers of our history. Like the work we make is going to define the past, is going to define the future. And so we have this innate sense of responsibility as artists to continue the work that we're making. And I think every artist should not take that lightly. You know, there's moments for joy and work that may not have that kind of burden as well. But I feel like, you know, um, as artists, because you have that skill set, then you should be a little bit mindful of what you're making because uh, uh, eventually that work um, is going to fall in place in history somewhere. And so how do you want that legacy to be defined? What is the final messaging you want to leave behind? So oh, what a perfect way to end the episode. This is beautiful. I'm so grateful that we've gotten a chance to talk with you and to interview you. And I'm even more grateful that it's recorded because I look forward to hearing it back. I feel like you've you've said so much excellent advice for kind of various stages of different art careers and also just really good life advice and, and support and encouragement. So thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your wisdom and brilliance with us, and also for making your work and putting it out there. Thank you. It means a lot. And again, you know, I, and it's just a joy, you know, I love everything you're working on. Um, I haven't traveled in quite a while. And so I'm hoping this year will be my first season of traveling again. And so anytime, you know, I'm out on the West Coast, I um, would love, you know, with your blessing to stop by or, or yes. make something happen. Oh, I would love that. And I mean, of course, next time I'm in Miami, which I don't know when that'll be, but hopefully in the near future, I will absolutely reach out. And you said you have a solo show coming up. Um, when? In, in Baltimore? In Baltimore. It's going to be this may like mid somewhere in my mid-may and it's gonna run through like i think part of the like end of mid midsummer i think is is the show's gonna run till and so that's everything in the studio right now is for the solo show that i'm working on and so um everything because it's a little bit nerve-wracking i feel like i wish i had a year but i'm gonna have to just produce what i can i'm gonna edit the show and whatever does not make the final cut i'm gonna save it to keep working on it throughout the rest of the year so you got this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is yeah. yeah, this is the one that I like actually behind me. Like the work of this one right now. So this is oh, man, yes. Ooh, we're getting a sneak listeners, sneak. we get to see what you're not getting to see. <laughs> I feel like the work of the show right now. But like I said, I'm all over the place. Like I'll work on one for one a couple of days, then I'll leave that one, try to work on another one. So right now I'm trying to like hone hone down the work the core pieces for the show like what is the core messaging of this exhibition oh i cannot wait to see what you create in the next few months and i'm i'm also grateful that we were able to sit down it's been so exciting to hear more about your learn more about your story and your journey um both pre and post and during our time together at micah 
and just just cheering you on from afar oh my gosh it's been really yeah i'm just like so excited to continue to follow your work uh truly so thank you so much for taking the time absolutely thank you it's, it's an absolute pleasure That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! And so, yeah, um, this is all off record. Off record, yes. <laughs> oh. Sorry, my cat is needy today. Sprout, you gotta stop. Yes, I think that's, that's excellent such advice. Great advice. <laughs> yeah, Amanda and I said the same thing. Yeah, sorry, we're always on a little bit of a lag. Nicole, you go.